0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We start today with the story of an unusual child. This was someone I met when I had a toddler of my own. The unusual child was on the playground with my son, and I met his father, who turned out to be a lot like me. We were going through the stages of development together. Oh, your son dropped his nap? mine too. Or does he know the alphabet yet? Has he tried chocolate ice cream? We tried that yesterday. And one day we went for a visit at this unusual child's house. And my friend said, I'll call the boy Danny. My friend said, yeah, Danny really likes puzzles. And I said, oh, right. My son does too. And my friend kind of paused and said, I mean, Danny really likes them. He went on to tell me it was not just the kid puzzles of the three bears and those little mother goose type wooden puzzles, but puzzles for grown-ups—five 500 piece puzzles, a thousand piece puzzles. I was impressed. And then my friend told me something that floored me. Danny had found the puzzles too easy to do. He had been turning the pieces over so the picture sides were down and putting the puzzles together using the gray backs as his guide instead of the picture. Just putting them all together. No visual clues, no colors, nothing other than the shapes fitting into one another. Every kid is different, of course. They're all special, they're all unique but I remember thinking, I might never again meet a child or a person whose brain works quite like this one's does. Fernando Pessoa, our subject today, seems to have struck people the same way. One of his school friends later described him this way, quote, he was pale and thin and appeared physically to be very imperfectly developed. He had a narrow and contracted chest and was inclined to stoop. He had a peculiar walk, and some defect in his eyesight gave to his eyes also a peculiar appearance. The lids seemed to droop over the eyes. He was regarded as a brilliant, clever boy as, in spite of the fact that he had not spoken English in his early years, he had learned it so rapidly and so well that he had a splendid style in that language although younger than his school fellows of the same class he appeared to have no difficulty in keeping up with and surpassing them in work for one of his age he thought much and deeply and in a letter to me once complained of spiritual and material encumbrances of most especial adverseness he took no part in athletic sports of any kind and i think his spare time was spent on reading we generally considered That he worked far too much and that he would ruin his health by so doing. End quote. Reminds me of my friend's son and his puzzles. For him, though, for Pessoa, the puzzles were bits of literature. In a chaotic century, living a chaotic life, he lived a life that was quiet and insular. Meanwhile, His imagination ran through literature like a child dumping out the box and putting all the pieces back together. From an early age, he developed a habit to write a poem or an essay or a journal entry in a distinct poetic style, not just as Fernando Pessoa, but as another person, a pseudonym, you might say. But he rejected that term, as insufficient. These were people with full biographies and backstories, different worldviews, heteronyms, Pessoa called them, and he invented dozens of them. I've seen some counts put the number at over 40, some at over 70. His latest biographer suggests it's well over 100. Was he expanding Fernando Pessoa into multitudinous realms? Or was he erasing Pessoa altogether, expanding or erasing, duplicating or disappearing? The unusual case of an unassuming but highly unusual person today on the history of literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. He dumped out the puzzle pieces and tried to put them all back together. Sort of what we're doing here at the History of Literature, isn't it? Bit by bit, piece by piece, making sense of it all, making a giant tapestry, a few threads at a time. But here's the difference. Imagine if instead of coming to you as Jack Wilson every episode, I also created a whole new persona maybe a black gay man from Buffalo one day, an Alabama farmer the next. One day I'm a crusty old curmudgeon telling you about my love for Horace. The next episode, I'm a mystic immersed in Spinoza working as a fortune teller in Southern California, all with different names, different personas And imagine I'm very good at it and completely sane as I'm doing all this, as Pessoa seems to have been. You would have a lot to think about, right? It would take some time. You'd say, here's Jack talking about the great Gatsby, but it's not Jack. It's his persona, Sid Silverstein, the unreconstructed Marxist who once spent five years in a federal prison for trying to blow up the National Guard recruitment office. Or you'd say, yes, the Emily Dickinson episode was insightful. Not sure I agreed with Jack and his take on her. Except, wait, it wasn't Jack. I have to get that right. It was Sally Charbonneau, the orphan from Idaho, who was born on a boat and wound up having a career as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Where's Jack? Nowhere to be found. Jack's episode's... The handful that he puts out are as dull as dishwater, but the episodes by Sally Charbonneau and Sid Silverstein and all the other dozens of guest hosts are endlessly fascinating. You would also wonder, probably, what to make of such a podcast and the person at its heart. On the one hand, it sounds incredibly self-effacing. An egotist might take on the history of literature as Jack Wilson, presuming that there will be interest in hearing what he has to say about everything under the sun at regular intervals. A project like Pessoa's, where nearly everything he puts out is created by someone other than Fernando Pessoa, that sounds like the work of someone humble, invisible, unassuming, right? But there's irony to this, because my hypothetical podcast, with all the different personas crashing around, telling you all about literature, suddenly... That becomes about more than literature. It's literature and it's literary criticism, just like the real history of literature podcast is. But this imagined one is also its own stunt, a grand performance. You can't just take an episode on its specific terms and leave it there. What would be unique about each episode would be how it fits into the whole vast universe of episodes with all the different subjects told in all those different voices. So is that a subtraction of the host or is it an addition? That's what we have in Pessoa as well. You take a poem by an individual identity or a series of poems by that person and you can assess them on their own terms. But to really see them clearly, you also have to fit them in with all the other identities and all the other poems and Fernando Pessoa himself, if you can find him. What my podcast, my imagined... Podcast would invite you to do is to think about the nature of podcasts and podcasting itself. What do you get from a host? What do you get from a series of podcast episodes by a single person or by multiple people? And what if that, what if the multiple people is actually a single person? For Pessoa, we ask the same questions, only it's not from podcasters and podcasts, but from poetry and poets. A lot of literature takes on the question, what is the self? Pessoa is fairly unique in the way he's addressed that question. You might say to yourself, this sounds positively Borgesian, and I agree. Although the two, who were about 11 years apart in age, although the two actually lived in Lisbon at the same time for at least a few months, there's no record of Fernando Pessoa and Jorge Luis Borges ever meeting. I can't find references to them in each other's works. Pessoa was almost unknown at the time of his death. He had one book of poems published that had won a prize, but it wasn't a very, in English anyway, or I'm sorry, in Portuguese. He had a couple books in English. This book won a prize, but it wasn't a very well-received book. It wasn't a runaway bestseller or anything. It was The book in his name, Fernando Pessoa. It was only the only one he ever published. It was only after his death and years and years were going by that the vastness and frankly bizarre nature of his project emerged. So maybe Borges didn't know him or maybe I've just missed it. Pessoa has a reference to a Borges in his greatest work, The Book of Disquiet, but that seems to be a coincidence. Just another... Borges. Coincidence. Someone else named that. Not intended to be the famous writer. But I think it's fair to say that Pessoa, when I tell you about this guy's life and his writing and how it came out of him and what he did with all these voices and people and poets, how it kind of took over, you will agree, I think, that if God hadn't created Fernando Pessoa, Borges might have done it. When he reached heaven, Borges, the creator of endless labyrinthine libraries and books with a single word that can kill you, and stories like that, probably looked at God and said, Ah, Pessoa, I've never been more envious. Your finest work, my lord. And God probably smiled back and said, Jorge, I thought you'd like that one. Okay, enough fanciful speculation. Let's start our look at the crazy star of Portuguese literature. Truly one of the brightest stars in the Western literary tradition, and maybe the most singular star, too. Fernando Pessoa's life in literature after this. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Fernando Pessoa was born in 1888 in Lisbon, Portugal. For those of you looking to fit him into a modernist tradition, that is, six years after James Joyce was born, six years after Virginia Woolf, five years after Kafka, and the same year as T.S. Eliot. His tragedies started early. His father died when he was five years old, and his younger brother, who was only one, died the same year, both from tuberculosis. His mother remarried a few years later and moved the family to Durban, South Africa. Pessoa received an education in English. As we heard, he mastered the language quickly, and he soon steeped himself in English and Latin classics. Shakespeare, Keats, the Brownings, Horace, Virgil, and popular works too, like Robert Louis Stevenson. He added Americans like Whitman and Poe. French poets like Rimbaud and Mallarmé and Verlaine. And like Borges, he seems to have wanted to read everything and not just read it, but commune with it, invent things related to it, all related to literature. Here's a journal that contains it. Here's a book that would include all of it. Here's a person who wrote it. And the person he made up was not always Fernando Pessoa. Pessoa is so dreamy sometimes and so quirky that he seems like he's all alone. You imagine him refusing to go out a lot. He even wrote, much later in life, the following about a person like himself. Quote, Nothing had ever obliged him to do anything. He had spent his childhood alone. He never joined any group. He never pursued a course of study. He never belonged to a crowd. The circumstances of his life were marked by that strange but rather common phenomenon. Perhaps, in fact, it's true for all lives of being tailored to the image and likeness of his instincts, which tended toward inertia and withdrawal. And so his biographer was surprised to find that when Pessoa was a teenager, he had all of these letters, vast correspondence with a wide variety of unusual friends. And then the biographer realized these were not real people. Pessoa had invented them all. He was writing too, mostly in English and mostly under these invented personas. David Merrick, Charles Robert Anon. A lot of the earliest names are puns related to being anonymous. He was not Fernando Pessoa. He was Alexander Search. He was Horace James Faber. He was Chevalier Chevalier de Pas, a French nobleman. He was Dr. Pancrasio. He returned to Lisbon at age 17 and lived there for the rest of his life, hardly ever leaving. He moved around, renting rooms, often in debt. He eked out a living writing business letters in French and English. He spent most of his spare time in cafes. He had no real relationships, not close ones. Most biographers conclude he was likely a virgin when he died. At least one of his personas was bisexual, and who knows, maybe there was some shame or guilt. It was not an easy time to be gay if he was gay. But we don't know. It's pretty hard to conclude anything about him because he invented so much. We do know that he went to his barber shop every single morning for a shave. And on Sundays, when the shop was closed, the barber came to him. My best customer, he said. Can't miss the day if he wants me there. He had routines like this, Pessoa did. Order, almost like a, a body living separately from his mind. You know those people who say, I spend four minutes every day deciding what to wear if I just... And I agonize over the choice. If I just would buy 10 of the same outfit, I could save all that time and anxiety. Here we go. 10 pairs of khakis, 10 blue shirts. Pessoa seems to have been a little like that. He did go to cafes and talk to friends in between gigs or after work. He put together journals and published some poems in them. He loved talking about poetry, but mostly It's a pretty routine existence. He was living there in Lisbon. Every night he went to a little store and bought some bread and ham and cheese. That was his dinner. He bought a pack of cigarettes and a pint and a half of cheap brandy. There are some quirks that emerge from his daily life. He used to stand on a street and imitate an ibis, those stork-like birds, Standing on one leg with the other bent back, his nose pushed forward like a beak. He seems to have had a real affinity for these birds. Maybe it was a way not to be a human. When he inherited some money when he was 21, he bought a printing press with a hundred ideas for books he wanted to publish. Ibis Press, it was called, and the book list he planned give a sense of his wide-ranging interests. Plays by Aeschylus and Shakespeare, classical Portuguese works of poetry, Robert Louis Stevenson, Machado de Assis. In the end, he went broke. Ibis Press had not published a single book. But Pessoa was giving his life over to literature, and by giving his life over, I mean something more than usual. He was seeking to disappear into it, Around him, chaos reigned. He lived through the Boer War and World War I. In between, Portugal's monarchy fell. Parliamentary democracy replaced it with monarchists then trying to overthrow it for the next several years until a bloodless military coup led to a dictatorship. All this, while the once vast Portuguese empire continued to shrink and Europe went through all the clatter of modernity, the urbanization, sometimes dehumanizing, the effects of corporations and bureaucracies, the rise of technology and industry, the advent of cinema and automobiles and movement. The world was shrinking and yet spinning faster, and Pessoa's response was to stand on one leg and imagine himself to be an inert bird. And to put together a daily routine that hardly wavered, and to divide himself into a million fragments, bits of poetry and verse and poets, some of them recurring, some of them barely existing on the page. One of his friends left a cafe with him and later described, quote, this uncanny sensation that Pessoa, as soon as he disappeared around the corner of a downtown street, had really disappeared, and would be nowhere in sight were he to run after him. End quote. This was what Pessoa wanted. He wrote this in a poem. I have in me like a haze which holds and which is nothing, a nostalgia for nothing at all, the desire for something vague. His disappearing act involved literature, the whole history of it, The different heteronyms allowed him to take on all literature from any angle he wanted. The English tradition has a strong tradition of the pastoral. Well, no problem. You can invent a poet who's a shepherd. Only this one didn't happen to have any sheep. Oh, modernism is here. Here's a poet who's devoted to it. Oh, conservative anti-Semitic rants. I've got just the guy who can talk like that. Here's his name. Here's where he's from. Over a hundred of these people writing poems, considering the world from their particular angle, writing in the style that makes sense for them. And Pessoa nowhere in sight. Alvaro de Campos was a naval engineer who had studied in Glasgow, a dandy, probably Jewish, who drank absinthe. And smoked opium, and who celebrated urban renewal, mechanisms, technology, and progress. That's the modernist. Ricardo Reis, meanwhile, was a South African schoolteacher who specialized in Latin. He wrote poems like Horace, Odes to the Brevity of Life, the Joy of Simple Pleasures. Alberto Cario was the sheepless shepherd I met. I, I mentioned, naive, pastoral, Pessoa described the day that he encountered this figure who was, he said, like a vaccine against the stupidity of the intelligent. That phrase sort of sums up Pessoa's outlook in a way. Not the stupidity of the world. 70% of Portuguese citizens were illiterate in those days, by the way. But the stupidity of the intelligent. A poet who acts as a vaccine against the stupidity of the intelligent. He's my master, Pessoa said. My master had appeared in me. He, he claimed, Pessoa claimed that on this day of triumph, he stood at a dresser and wrote 30-some poems by this man, Alberto Cario. He said he wrote 30-some poems by this guy in one go, but the story, it turns out, was made up, biographers have found drafts of the poems had been written before this day of triumph. Anyway, these people had their their own appearances, writing styles, signatures. They, They signed their names differently. They had these elaborate biographies. They had astrological charts. They had political views. Sometimes they argued with one another about aesthetics or philosophy. Sometimes they interfered with Pessoa's personal life too. They would interject themselves into letters he was writing or they would answer the phone to say that Pessoa was not in. So what do we make of this menagerie of fake poets? Cairo and Campos are actually Great poets. Race is pretty good too, an interesting minor poet, we could say. Caro was a pure poet, a natural who was barely educated and who died at age 26. Campos and Race and Pessoa himself were influenced by him, but Caro had no influences. Octavio Paz, one of Pessoa's great champions said, Caro is the sun in whose orbit race, campos, and Pessoa himself rotate. In each are particles of negation or unreality. Race believes in form, campos in sensation, Pessoa in symbols. Caro doesn't believe in anything, he exists. And yet, as I need to remind you as we talk about these four poets, they're all the same person. The same person putting on these different personas and writing as them. In addition to those three and himself, he wrote poems as other people too. Claude Pasteur was a French translator. Antonio Mora was a philosopher and an expert in neopaganism. Raphael Baldaya was an astrologer. Pessoa was fascinated by astrology and developed astral charts for not just his poets, that he, his heteronyms that he was inventing, but for literary characters and other writers. He was also fascinated by the occult. Some of his heteronyms would get pretty out there in their views, following Pessoa's lead, but saying things that maybe Pessoa would never have put to his own name. That's true for politics as well. One of his poets had a, developed a kind of mystic nationalism, That sounds a bit too close to fascism and Hitler for our taste. But what is Pessoa up to with that? Is he saying something he wants to say but can't? Or is he saying something in this voice because we will, it will satirize the views and the poetry? Is he saying something to give us an overview of what's out there and what's possible? It's always hard to know. Rosicru- Rosicrucianism was one of his interests. Alchemy, black magic. And then there were some that were less toxic, less controversial. A. A. Cross was an author who solved puzzles. Lucas Merrick may have been the brother of David Merrick, that really heteronym. In any case, he wrote short, short stories like David did. Alexander Search also had a brother, Charles James Search, who was a translator and essayist. F.B.D. Pasha wrote funny stories. Joaquim Moura Costa was a Republican activist who wrote satirical poems. Antonio de Ciabra was a literary critic. Some of these people fooled literary historians for a long time. There are several of Pessoa's heteronyms who appeared in various anthologies as themselves for years or decades before people realized that it was actually just another version of Pessoa. In fact, this might have been Pessoa's goal all along. Not me, not Fernando. I want to know what it's like to be part of the universe, to not have a body, to not have a soul, to not have a self. So he split himself into all these fat fragments. He died in 1935, aged 47, basically unknown at the time of his death. My friends think I'll be famous, he once wrote to his mother. He said, quote, what will I be 10 years from now or even five? My friends say I'll be one of the greatest contemporary poets. They say this based on what I've already written, not what I may yet write. But even if this is true, I have no idea what it will mean. I have no idea how it will taste. Perhaps glory tastes like death and futility, and triumph smells of rottenness. End quote. If he was afraid of fame, if he wanted to be obscure, he almost got his wish. All those poems scattered to the winds people gathering the pieces, finding selves, bits of Pessoa that were not him, except they were him. I'm not sure he'd be considered major if he had only written in his own own name, and certainly as friend of the show, on he'd Sorry, Anahid Narcesian points out the works he wrote as Fernando Pessoa are largely unremarkable. If he wanted to be un- obscure and forgotten, he almost got his wish. Almost. But not quite, because after he died, a chest was discovered containing the work of his life. It was thousands of pages of writings under yet another heteronym so this one was by Bernardo Soares a near heteronym he called it and it's the work that changed everything <laughs> Soa died in literary obscurity. He was 47 years old. The year was 1935. By 1985, the authorities had exhumed his body and reburied it alongside Portugal's national heroes. What had happened in between? Well, the Book of Disquiet is what had happened. It didn't start out as a book. It started as a trunk filled with thousands of pages, scraps, and fragments, and ideas. The book of disquiet, the project of Pessoa's life, is about as hard to pin down as he was. Pessoa called it a factless bi- uh, sorry, a factless autobiography. Pessoa's a great one for contradictions, kind of like Oscar Wilde. The phrase sounds normal at first. Factless autobiography. Okay, sure, I get it. I know what those words mean. But wait, what? What is a factless autobiography? Fiction? A novel? And it's by someone named Bernardo Soares, who doesn't exist. So is it an autobiography of that guy? Of Pessoa? But with no facts? So what do we have in this trunk? We have pages, fragments, and no real plan or guidance for how to organize them. Different editors have taken different approaches. I should say no comprehensive plan or guidance. Different editors have taken different approaches, and I'm sure there are more to come. We have raw material, and it must be shaped somehow. But what comes out of all of these versions is a kind of exploration of meaning and meaninglessness. It's one of the most striking works you will ever read. It's philosophical, it's mundane, it's penetrating, and elusive all at once. Bernardo Soares is our guide to it. It's the closest heteronym to Pessoa himself, and we can imagine that much of what's in the Book of Disquiet is what was running through Pessoa's mind. And what we see in that mind is someone constantly trying to explore meaning and meaninglessness, not just a metaphysical question. Okay, we know the big metaphysical questions, right? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? Why are we here? Does the world really exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Those are tough questions, but they're so familiar to us that we're on somewhat firm ground when we explore them. The Book of Disquiet asks questions like, what is metaphysics to a tree? I'm sick of everything, and of the everythingness of everything, Bernardo Soares tells us. In the mouth of a holy fool, or a precocious child, or Ringo Starr, we might smile. Ah, yes, how accidentally profound. In the Book of Disquiet, it reverberates like a shimmering mirage of an oasis we cannot visit. And yet, it's there. It chills the desert. I'm sick of everything and of the everythingness of everything. Here's another quote. Life is an experimental journey undertaken involuntarily. It is a journey of the spirit through the material world, and since it is the spirit that travels, it is the spirit that is experienced. That is why there exist contemplative souls who have lived more intensely, more widely, more tumultuously than others who have lived their lives purely externally. End quote. I can follow that one. It's our spirit, not our body, that matters. The mind can be on a wild journey even as the body stays still. Here, Pessoa slash Soares slash everyone else in his little zoo that he's got, zoo of authors that he's got. Those are the examples for us to follow, right? We know why he thinks that. That's how he was living. But then he pushes it further when he privileges literature over everything else. Some sounds a bit uh, conventional, he says, quote, to write is to forget. Literature is the most agreeable way of ignoring life. Music soothes. The visual arts exhilarate. The performing arts, such as acting and dance, entertain. Literature, however, retreats from life by turning it into slumber. The other arts make no such retreat, some because they use visible and hence vital formulas, other because they live from human life itself. This isn't the case with literature. Literature simulates life. A novel is a story of what never was. A play is a novel without narration. A poem is the expression of ideas or feelings, a language no one uses because no one talks in verse. End quote. That's sensible enough. Literature as a simulation of life This is the writer coming out of Tolstoy and Dickens and Flaubert and George Eliot and all those novel writers who gave us characters breathing and thinking and loving and dying. So literature, nice job. You you entertain, but you also simulate closer to life than poetry or plays if you're a novel. But listen to where this push for literature takes us after that. Quote, There are metaphors more real than the people who walk in the street. There are images tucked away in books that live more vividly than many men and women. There are phrases from literary works that have a positively human personality. There are passages from my own writing that chill me with fright. So distinctly do I feel them as people. So sharply outlined do they appear against the walls of my room at night, in shadows. I've written sentences whose sound, read out loud or silently, impossible to hide their sound, can only be of something that acquired absolute exteriority and a full-fledged soul. End quote. That is extraordinary. something to, something to think about. He believed it. You know he felt it. This wasn't a game to him. He had these passages with their sound impossible to keep them silent. It lived in sharp outlines at night, in shadows. As real to him as people, a passage with an absolute exteriority and a full fledged soul. Okay. Here's where the question to be part of literature, the explosion of self into literary fragments. This is where that journey takes us. Quote, this is from the book of disquiet. All these are from the book of disquiet. Quote, today, Suddenly, I reached an absurd but unerring conclusion. In a moment of enlightenment, I realized that I'm nobody, absolutely nobody. When the lightning flashed, I saw that what I had thought to be a city was in fact a deserted plain, and in the same sinister light that revealed me to myself, there seemed to be no sky above it. I was robbed of any possibility of having existed before the world. If I was ever reincarnated, I must have done so without myself, without a self to reincarnate. I am the outskirts of some non-existent town, the long-winded prologue to an unwritten book. I'm nobody. Nobody. I don't know how to feel or think or love. I'm a character in a novel as yet unwritten, hovering in the air and undone before I've even existed, amongst the dreams of someone who never quite managed to breathe life into me. I'm always thinking, always feeling, but my thoughts lack all reason, my emotions all feeling. I'm falling through a trapdoor, through infinite Infinitus space, in a directionless, empty fall. My soul is a black maelstrom, a great madness spinning about a vacuum, the swirling of a vast ocean around a hole in the void. And in the waters, more like whirlwinds than waters, float images of all I ever saw or heard in the world houses, faces, books, boxes snatches of music and fragments of voices, all caught up in a sinister, bottomless whirlpool. And I, I myself am the center that exists only because the geometry of the abyss demands it. I am the nothing around which all this spins. I exist so that it can spin. I am a center that exists only because every circle has one. I, I myself, am the well in which the walls have fallen away to leave only viscous slime. I am the center of everything, surrounded by the great nothing. And it is as if hell itself were laughing within me, but instead of the human touch of diabolical laughter. There's the mad croak of the dead universe, the circling cadaver of physical space, the end of all worlds drifting blackly in the wind, misshapen, anachronistic, without the God who created it, without God himself, who spins in the dark of darks, impossible, unique, everything. If only I could think. If only I could feel. This is a literature and a life, and a life in and of and by and for literature, and a depth of feeling that stands alone. Harold Bloom, the critic. I have, my, I have my issues with Harold Bloom, for sure. I don't accept him as some holy man of literature the way some do, starting with the good Professor Bloom. May he rest in peace himself. But he wrote with panache. He read a lot. He undeniably loved literature. And his somewhat bombastic assertions are useful. At times, he's useful at things like making lists. His book, The Western Canon, is such a list. 26 authors who shaped Western literature and Western civilization. I like books like this. I like checking to make sure to see if I agree or disagree, making sure I haven't left anything out. Well, Pessoa is on that list. Maybe that doesn't sound crazy to you until I tell you who's on there and who isn't. Shakespeare's on there. Dante, Chaucer, Cervantes, Milton, Wordsworth, Austin, Tolstoy, Dickens. That's the kind of author we're talking about. Rare company for Pessoa to be in. Dostoevsky did not make it. Rilke, not there. The Brontes, not there. Thomas Monsnot, Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift. Some really big guns are not part of this arsenal. Sorry, John Keats. You're out. For modernists, it's Proust, Joyce, Wolf, Kafka, Ibsen, and Freud, if you count Ibsen and Freud. And then the most recent of the four, Samuel Beckett, Pablo Neruda, Borges, and Pessoa. It's an astonishing inclusion, or at least it was to me. What? Who? Fernando? I haven't heard of this guy. That was me in the 90s. But time has borne it out, I think. I would drop some others from that list before I would drop Pessoa. He belongs. Bloom compared Pessoa to Walt Whitman. He noticed that Pessoa had been immersed in leaves of grass before starting his greatest works. I think Pessoa would have approved of this tie to Whitman, except he'd probably say that he was also influenced by Shakespeare, he, he did he wrote cycles of Shakespearean sonnets. After all, he also wrote about Goethe. He once he wa- <laughs> I don't think he would want to be credited with being influenced by anyone. He would want to say everyone. He once planned to write a book called Total Literature. One or two influences just aren't enough for Pessoa. You almost need to to say everything ever written. And to which Pessoa would probably add, and nothing at all. So what does the Book of Disquiet give us? What kind of readerly experience, as you might expect, or as you might have gleaned, it's filled with sadness, shot through with melancholy. I guess that's expected for someone who's doing feeling so much of being a nobody and doing so much scrambling to disappear into other people. But then again, is that really expected? Is that the only possibility here? Couldn't we imagine a project like this one, not by Pessoa maybe, but by someone else, if someone else undertook it? Couldn't we imagine this project being full of excitement? The noisy clatter of a show about to go on All the characters backstage waiting for their turn in the spotlight. The intoxicating fever of unbound creativity. But that's not the tone we get or the experience. There's some of it, but I feel like I'm supplying that more than Pessoa felt it or is giving to me. Mostly, I get the sadness running through it, which is fine, too. I like clouds in my coffee, as you know, but I do like coffee too, strong coffee and blue skies and open roads and that first bite of the apple and falling in love. I also like rain on the window and working until my muscles ache and funerals and staring at nothing. Yes, I like funerals. They can be awful, but they can also be full of warmth and love and giving and renewal. They are a celebration of life after all. It's not just a cliche, it's true. And a contemplation of what's beyond and what's here. It's the the moment when the steam shovel's blade of loss drags across us and enlarges our being. So here's a question. Pessoa's project was like no other an idea, or execution. The end result is filled with sadness. Is it sad because Pessoa was sad? We know he laughed with his friends and so on, but he might have been sad, constantly sad, when he considered the world and picked up his pen. Lots of people are. It's the privilege of the artist, maybe even the default position. So are the books, is is this book, the Book of Disquiet, sad? Because Pessoa was sad, because he couldn't get beyond the sadness. And when he wrote as Bernardo Soares, his closest heteronym, the sadness in Fernando Pessoa flowed through his alter ego and infused the work. Was he naturally sad? Or Is the writing sad because the project itself made him so? Is this erasure of the self, this blowing it all into fragments, this disappearing into literature, this mask wearing and shape shifting, does doing that make one sad? Pessoa's heteronyms said things he himself would not have. They took those outrageous positions. They were more licentious and bawdy. They defended things that society considered immoral and so on. Would Fernando Pessoa have been happier if he'd kept all that to himself with no outlet for them? That's hard to imagine. We think he has to be happy. It has to be a positive thing that he found a way to say what was in his mind, to expunge these ideas. It must have fulfilled his, his desire to be creative, his intelligence, his literary love, his discernment, his need to speak about what he saw around him. That has to be the case, right? It must have been a good thing that he was writing. But here's the more difficult question. Would he have been happier? If he'd been able to say all those things in his own voice as Fernando Pessoa instead of through a hundred plus characters, that's hard to know. Even harder to know is whether having a single self that he built up over time, established as an author figure like authors do. Lots of people note that they're not their author and vice versa. That's common. Right, there's Borges, and then there's I, and the I is not Borges. We see that with lots of authors. It goes way back. But would developing the character, the author figure of Fernanda Pessoa, would that have calmed him down, made him more reflective, made him less sad? It's not for us to speculate, really not if we're insisting on finding a definitive answer, but if we accept that we are seekers too, it gives you a sense of what you can explore if you go down these rabbit holes as you're looking for the real Fernando Pessoa, master ventriloquist, or as you're just enjoying the voices of all the dummies. You can explore what it would be like to explode yourself into a million fragments. You see how this polymorph deals with politics and poetry. Is that what you would do? Who would you be? Would it change you to be all these people? How could it not? But would you prefer it? Pessoa had one mind, but it contained all these multitudes. Or you can say Pessoa was full of multitudes, but they were contained in one mind. It's all him, like the universe, with all the stars in it. Or The multiverse, if the universe is not broad enough for you. But the multiverse has to be somewhere, too. And in Pessoa, it resided not in a somewhere, but a someone. The mind of a person. A someone. One of his early English heteronyms was someone. Spelled S-U-M-W-A-N. Someone. A nice pun. Who am I? I'm someone. But of course, he didn't always feel that he was someone or not anybody important enough to be a someone anyway. I'm a nobody, nobody. I don't know what I feel or what I want to feel. I don't know what to think or what I am. I'm a character in a novel not yet written, and yet, like my young friend with the puzzle pieces turned over. Pessoa is someone. That puzzle is gray, the dullest puzzle imaginable, almost a picture of nothing, but it's not nothing. And in fact, it's a lot more than that. It's absolutely something. It's so remarkable. The most remarkable nothing imaginable. Pessoa sought to depersonalize himself, but in the end, he gives us a singular person, and he inspires us to think about it. What Think about what it means to be a person, a self-abnegating person, a shapeshifter, a galaxy. Nothing and everything. We are two abysses, a well staring at the sky. Pessoa wrote, his well was very deep and his sky was full of stars. But there's another protagonist in there, a third, and it's found in the word we, the plural form of I for all of his melting away into literature, his views that humans were just cadavers postponed. There was something there, as he says. There's a center to the circle. Pessoa did live in the world. He did have thoughts. There was a cogito in the cogito ergo sum. He was a person. Personhood is what he wanted to deny and what he ended up affirming with the whole of his existence and all of his imagination, too. It's the starting point and the finish, the point of specificity and the point of anonymity. It's all we have, but it's everything, too. He sought to depersonalize himself, and yet he was a person. And what does the Portuguese word pessoa mean? It means... Quite simply, person. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wow! Wow, 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 wow. Harold Bloom and his Western canon. I think we've talked about just about all the authors on that list. We've done full episodes on probably half of them or more. You can find those in our archives. My thanks to Fernando Pessoa. Not sure he was a saint like my heroes Kafka. Almost said Kafka. Chekhov. Well, Kafka, him too. Chekhov was who I meant to say. But let's say Kafka. Let's throw Proust in there. But Pessoa, while he might not be a saint like those guys, he's up there. As devoted to literature as Dr. Johnson and Borges, and that's saying quite a lot. Speaking of devoted to literature, our 400th episode of the History of Literature podcast is around the corner. We have Stephen Crane first. He was no slouch. Speaking of crazy lives to live, he had a much crazier life than I knew. Sort of a... He was sort of a brothel? Me? Me? I was doing research, kind of guy. <laughs> Except he, he kind of was doing research. Maybe that was valid. Anyway, we'll talk about his arrests and his efforts to get out of debt, his crazy celebrity. All of that is on tap for episode number 399. And Mike Palindrome will be here for episode 400. That's in the books. That's already been recorded. Here we go. I can hear the music changing as I speak. I think you will want to join us for both of those and for others besides. Let's hope. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.